So, who's ready for the Word today? Awesome. Awesome. Let's open up our Bibles to the book of James, chapter 1. The book of James, chapter 1. And we're going to read a few verses, starting out at verse 21. So let's read together. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word, this one will be blessed in what he does. Let's pray one more time. Father, in Jesus' name, we come to you today, God, uh, for a word. We come to you seeking for you to reveal your truth to us. I pray that you would just anoint me today to preach your word, to bring the truth forth, God, in a way that's accurate and that's uh, sharp and effective so that it may transform the lives of those who hear. For only your word can do that. I can't do anything apart from you, Holy Spirit. I just ask that you would work through me today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Isn't that true, you know, that we... We come and we are here to receive something, to encounter God and to experience Him in a personal way. We have a relationship we can have every day with God, but we come together as a family to worship and experience the power of God and the presence of God and then take that with us into our lives every single day. And it makes me think about when Jesus said, He talked about the kingdom of God, and he said the kingdom of God doesn't come with observation. You don't look to it and say, here it is there, or there it is there. That the kingdom of God actually has come near you, and it is in you. It's powerful, isn't it? If you think about that, one of the things that that says is that the kingdom of God is not meant for us to observe. It's meant for us to experience. It's meant for us to walk in and live in, not visit from time to time. I love that because when we come together as a church family, our heart when we worship is that we would encounter God, we would meet with Him, and we would be personally, every one of us, impacted, affected in a way when we leave here that God has done something fresh in us that that had not been done before we walked in here. And that's when the kingdom of God is a reality, it's experiential, it's not observation that we look upon and see it in that kind of way. And so um, I'm excited about the word that the Lord has put on my heart today. Uh, The title of the message is A Life of Impact, A Life of Impact. Let me open up first of all by talking about James, the, the book and the author. This is one of my favorite books in the Bible uh, among every book in the Bible. I know, I say that all the time. <laughs> I listen to myself sometimes, and I'm like, dude, you say that all the time. Yeah, like, but it is. I love the book of James, and one of the reasons I love it, it seems like when God takes me there, He takes me there at just the right time whenever I dig into it. 
It's just five chapters. You could probably read the book of James in like 15, 20 minutes. Uh, but it's real meaty. And I will just forewarn you, it's one of those kind of pop-you-in-the-mouth types of books. It's one of those like, hey, here's how you're supposed to live. Are you living this way kind of books, right? But it'll set you straight. Uh, if you're a little off course, read the book of James, and it kind of like whips you into shape a little bit, you know. Um, but James, I don't know if you know this, but he was actually the brother of Jesus. Half-brother. Um, because they had different dads, you know. <laughs> you guys didn't laugh. That's not working anymore. <laughs> it used to work. That does not work anymore. All right. So Jesus actually had four brothers, and he had some sisters too. We don't know how many sisters he had, and we don't know what their names are, but we do know the four brothers. There was James, who wrote this epistle. There was also Jude, known as Judas, but Jude, who wrote the epistle of Jude, which is the last book before Revelation. One chapter. Awesome read as well. And then there was Joseph, and then there was Simon, um, who did not author any of the books in the Bible. But when you read Mark 6, it lays out the different siblings of Jesus, and he was obviously the oldest child. So anybody here, an oldest child, have a bunch of younger siblings? Jesus can relate to you, right? He knows what it's like. But here's one of the things I find interesting about James. Ultimately, he went on to be martyred. Jewish historians say in like 60 AD, somewhere around there, most likely he was stoned to death and martyred for his faith, like almost all the apostles, right? Um, but while Jesus was on the earth, from what we can tell in the Bible, James never had a conversion experience. It, it does say in the Bible that, that his family didn't really believe that he was who he said he was. So not exactly positive, but it looks like James probably didn't come to a conversion experience where he was born again until after Jesus did what he did on the cross and was resurrected, and then later James eventually becomes one of the fathers of the New Testament church movement, carried a ton of leadership in the church. And this particular book, his audience is most likely... Uh, he doesn't say who he's writing it to in the beginning, but like other letters do. But most likely his audience is a group of believers, a group of people who are part of the church that are meeting regularly and coming together. I tell you that because it's always important to know the context, the audience, the backdrop, you know, what's going on to get full revelation and interpretation in Scripture. And James is addressing a group of people who are believers but he's doing it in a way where he's kind of calling them out or calling them up to a place where apparently they're not and they need to be. And so in these verses that we just read about, we saw that he tells them, you need to be doers of the word, not just hearers only, lest you deceive yourselves, right? And so when you study that, the word hear and you look at the meaning behind it, it really means to just kind of have a flippant, casual kind of listening experience. You know, anybody ever like listen, but you're not really listening? You guys didn't listen to me right there. See? That was good. You didn't even catch it. All right. I mean, I, I, I do this. Look, I'm just being honest, right? Katie will catch me in this a lot. She'll be talking and telling me things and I'll drift off, you know, and I'm thinking about five other things. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm listening. I'm listening, you know. And then the next day, she's like, so, you know, what do you think about that? And I'm like, think about what? <laughs> she's like, you know, that thing that we talked about. 
yesterday, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that thing. Uh, what, what thing exactly? <laughs> and then she's like, did you even hear anything that I said? Oh, of course I heard what you said. And then she'll be like, okay, so where are we going and when? And then I'll be like, uh, we're going here. She's like, you didn't hear a word I said, right? <laughs> I mean, it happens. But James is sort of addressing this in a little different way. He is basically saying, if you're casually listening to the Word of God, if you're casually approaching the Word of God, then it's not going to have the effect and the impact on you that it can and is supposed to be having. And specifically, that impact that he's referring to is that they weren't living a life that was truly reflecting the goodness and transformative nature that God had done on the inside of them already. Meaning there was a misalignment from the works and the life that was being lived outwardly to the inward work that Jesus had done and died to purchase for them to walk in. He says, look, it's important that you not be just hearers only, that you also be doers of the word. That word doers and the, the works that he's saying you should be doing is consistent all through Scripture. That a life of a person who's been called, marked by God, and, and brought into a purpose and destiny, guys, is a life of impact. And that's what I want to get through to us today, is that it's every single person who's in a chair right now this morning. It's not some, it's not leaders in the church only that those are the ones that really have a life of impact and everybody else just enjoys a relationship with Jesus. Like we are all called to live a life that ends up impacting the world around us and every one of us in a unique and different way but brings forth the kingdom of God in our generation. That's a part of what we're called to do. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, I think we have that, you can put that up. It says that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus, which God prepared beforehand good works that we should walk in them. Isn't that something? He doesn't like isolate certain people. He doesn't address specifically leaders in the church. He says we are all Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we would walk in. Good works, meaning divinely inspired, persuaded, and empowered actions that change the condition of the natural world around us when released out and through our lives from a supernatural source. Isn't that something? Good. I'm glad one person has a pulse in here today. All right. Little shouting is always good, just so you know. It's always good for a pastor. So he says, you know, don't be doers of the word, hearers, uh, don't be hearers of the word, only and not doers and he says or you deceive yourselves meaning you're actually delusional if you think that you're living the life you're supposed to be living if you're not impacting a world around you then you're you're missing something you're seeing something improperly deceived or delusional everybody look at your neighbor and say are you delusional <laughs> don't answer that for them either okay a lot of, wow, a lot of chatter going on all of a sudden. Okay. Uh, but it's, a neat, it's something that has to be addressed because really it's, the, it's that balance of 
faith and works or a life of impact, as I'm kind of expanding upon it for you today, that, that's the true balance, that's the true authentic expression of the Christian life, is a life of power and a life of impact. It's changing the natural setting around us in our day-to-day lives. People are being touched. Environments are being touched. Let, let me ask you this. If the, if the power of God isn't released through people who carry His Holy Spirit... What else can possibly change the condition of a natural setting? Only a supernatural force and power that's greater than and can override the limitations of the natural world. So he's saying, look, we we need to be living these kind of lives where it's impacting the world around us, not to the point where nothing different is happening. Like change should be coming and it should be flowing out of the life that we are living. And he says... Later in chapter 2, he says, look, I'm going to tell you this way. Faith without works is dead. Wow. See, I told you, it you kind of hits you a little bit when you read this one. Faith without works is dead. Now, what is he not saying? I always make it a point to say this in the message about James chapter 2, faith without works is dead. He's not saying that you can earn salvation, that you can earn God's goodness, that you can earn God's favor by doing things. That's what he's not saying. What he is saying is that true faith, when God comes to live on the inside of a person and he, there is a, a persuasion that's divinely birthed in them for a new life, then works are just automatic. Like a life of impact just begins to flow. If you've been transformed on the inside, then there are always outward implications that are going to happen from that which has occurred. Amen. That's what he's saying. He's like, look, faith without works is dead. And he even says this. He says... I will actually show you my faith by my works. Wow, that's a pretty bold statement. He's just saying, look, you can tell that Jesus lives in me. You'll be able to tell that because you'll see that the life I'm living is a life of power. He's not you know, disillusioned about where his strength comes from. His faith is in Christ, but he's just saying, look, you're going to see by the impact that my life makes that Jesus is making through me, you're going to see that I have faith in in the Son of God. You're going to see that there's a power in me that's flowing out, that's changing things in this world. And he's calling them to that point. And he's saying it's, it's possible that we can become casual listeners. He even says earlier, he says, you need to receive with meekness, lay aside all suffering and, or uh, lay aside all wickedness, and with meekness receive the implanted word. And, he, and so when we receive the implanted word with meekness, he means that there is a humility about you that recognizes that the word of God is the ultimate authority. If God says it, and you get a hold of it, it settles it. There's no back and forth, in and out, right? Later on, he talks about being a double-minded man and like a a ship tossed in the waves of the ocean, if you are. When the Word of God establishes something for us, when His truth sets a priority, then, folks, it settles it once and for all. That's our our meek approach to the Word. Like, God, this this is superior. This is ultimate This is the guiding factor in my life. This is up here. Everything else is down here. Like this is the settling factor in everything. 
And when we believe that and we approach that, then we can actually receive the word in a fresh and different kind of way where it can actually get implanted in us, which I'll talk about in a minute, which is what he's saying is actually what produces the life of good works and impact, is that the word has been implanted in you. He's not suggesting that it comes from any great effort or amazing self-discipline or awesome work ethic of your own. He's not saying that at all. He's saying this is the life you're supposed to have, but it comes out of someone who has received the word. It's actually received the implanted word. But th this idea of having the word of God be superior, like as the ultimate authority in our lives, is the place that every believer has to get to. I, I, you know, I love to go fishing, and you guys know that because you know, Katie told some ridiculous <laughs> stories. I'm sure that she embellished about. Um, yeah, and so... When I go fishing, I have these maps, and I've got maps of every lake in the Midwest. And you can study the maps, and it shows you all the pockets and the coves and the river channel and all these things that you need to know to fish. And on the side of every little area, it has what's called fishing tips, Greg. So I'll sit there, and I'll read the tips, you know. And say, well, if you do this and you do it this way at this time of year and use this bait and you use that, um, then you know you can really catch some, some hogs. That's what we call them, hogs. And so uh, I was like, oh, I'm going to go catch some hogs. So I'll go out there and I'll do what they say. And sometimes it'll work. But sometimes it won't. Sometimes it doesn't work at all. And you've got to do something totally different. So there's tips which are useful and helpful, but not always effective. And I think too many times, some of you see where I'm going with this, that we can, we can look at the Word of God or people can view the Word of God as like useful tips for our lives. Helpful tips. Take it or leave it. If it fits, wear it. If it doesn't, don't worry about it. Wrong. That is the wrong approach. That is a casual approach. And if that hasn't been settled in our heart that this word right here is the ultimate authority in our lives and if God says it, it settles it, then there will be a, 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 an approach that we take to the word that will limit what God wants to do and can do in many times in our lives. Is anybody with me today so far? So he says you have to receive with meekness uh, the implanted word. Now, that word implanted is, is really powerful. And I want to spend a minute to just really kind of paint this picture. Because it's possible for a word to come out. You know, the Bible speaks about the word as seed. And seed can get scattered. And we know that sometimes that seed can get scattered and not actually take root. Right? And so when he says that you have to receive with meekness the implanted word, implanted means that it has actually come and it means to be engrafted and to become a living part of. Isn't that something? The Word of God can actually, when we receive it, that it literally is engrafted into our spirit. We know that the Word of God is already alive and living because it's God's nature that's in it. Jesus said, the words I speak to you are spirit and they are life. So whenever we, He speaks His Word, His life is in His Word. And so when that gets in our heart and gets planted in there, then it begins to bring forth 
and produce the kind of change and the kind of growth that it's supposed to and meant to do. And many times a seed can get scattered but not actually get implanted and engrafted. I love that, that the Word of God literally comes to live on the inside of us. Isn't that amazing? I mean, we know the Bible says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, which means to be God-breathed. So this is so huge because this is not like any book, other book that you read. When you read a book, you're reading literary works of man that are compiled in great giftedness and very entertaining or very helpful and don't want to discount that. But we need to separate what the Word of God is from literary works. The Word of God is God's Spirit. It's His Word. It's God-breathed. So when we take it in, we're inhaling the life of God. And, and when we receive the Word and it's implanted, it takes up residency in our spirit. It comes and it lives. It's alive. And as it lives, it grows. And as it grows, it changes. And as it changes, it brings forth fruit. Isn't that amazing? Keith is... Uh, He's a farmer, and he does some pretty awesome things with some of his crops. And he knows how to uh, engraft, I think that's what they call it, but graft in one kind of a plant with another kind of a plant, where they sort of cut and sever, and then they weave the stalks together, and eventually they begin to grow together, and they become one thing. And so they're engrafted, not two separate things. And that's a really good picture that I get of how that Word of God comes and when it takes root in the soil of our heart, when it actually gets planted in there, it begins to live and it becomes a part of us. Never ever, hear me as your pastor, never ever underestimate the significance that the Word of God taking residency in your spirit can produce in your life in the days ahead. There are many times where I read the Word and I feel like I don't understand everything that I just read. That does not limit God's ability to produce fruit in your life from the truth and the breath that you've just breathed. Amen. The Bible says in, first, in uh, Proverbs chapter 14, 33, wisdom rests in the heart of him who has understanding. It takes residency in us. It lives there. And it is going to produce something of substance, something of purpose that God can do outwardly in our lives to make an impact in a lost and hurting and dying world. Amen. Amen. So, think about with me for a moment the different conditions that seed gets scattered in and what can happen when it doesn't take root. Jesus speaks about this. In Matthew 13, he talks about the parable of the sower. Remember that? First thing he says is he says, the uh, when he explains it, he says the word of God is seed. So he's talking about the sower is sowing seed. So that's the word of God. He says when it goes forth, one of a few things can happen. First thing is it falls to the wayside and nothing occurs. The birds actually come and snatch it up. This is like that casual listening experience. Not really devoted to it, not really paying attention to it, not really looking at it, craving it, and seeing it as this is the answer that I need to all the things that are, are going to affect me in my life. You know, that casual experience. And then whenever seed gets sown, whenever the word gets spoken, or we just read, like the enemy can just, just pluck that right up. 
Yep, that's not going anywhere. That's not going anywhere. That's not going anywhere. Because we've approached it wrong. The second condition, and when seed gets scattered, he said, is that it will start to spring up a little bit, but it's on rocky ground, so there's no root in it. And when it does, the sun comes up, and then it scorches it, and it dies. So it never really manifests into some place of fruitfulness. It's like you kind of get excited. Yep, I'm going to make some change. I'm going to do this. This sounds great. But it's really more of just like a self-help thing. You know, you kind of heard what you wanted to hear, but you're not really committed to walking it out. And so whenever it gets hot and the heat gets turned up, you abandon that and you go back to what you knew. You don't trust the word of God. And to follow that, you follow what you knew before or what you think is going to work. It goes against the word. So then that's the second condition. The third condition, he says that it actually does start to grow but a thorn or a thistle is also growing and that thorn or that thistle begins to choke out what is growing from the word that actually got in. This is very powerful because the other two conditions we see like it just faded off. This is a situation where the word of God actually did start to bring something forth in our life, but the thorn and the thistle chokes it out and prevents it from becoming all that it's supposed to be stunts its growth. What's a thorn or a thistle? It's a product of another seed. It's an inferior seed. And Satan will sow seed just the same as God wants to sow his word into your heart. He'll try to sow seed, take it, take it, take it. God in there begins to grow. It always conflicts with the word of God but it's often distorted just enough where it's sometimes hard to see, right? He's an angel disguised in light. And so that thorn or that thistle begins to grow up, and he knows that he'll choke when uh, uh, God begins to get the word in us, when something else starts to happen. He can choke that out because there's some other wrong view, uh, a lack of faith, or some misunderstanding of truth that he can begin to use to affect or stunt what the work that God's word can do in our lives I think that that's so powerful to know you say well how do I know whenever an inferior seed is being planted to me that's a very simple answer very important question very important but a very simple answer it's that you know what the real seed looks like so well that you can spot a phony, you can spot an imposter, you can spot a, an inferior seed from a mile away. Because that doesn't look like the word of truth, the word of love, and God's spirit that is in his word. When you know that, and you've given place to good seed in your life that's producing fruit, then you begin to recognize what bad seed looks like when it's trying to be sown. And I would just say this, there's not a day goes by that we live in this world where the enemy isn't trying to get some sort of bad seed into our lives. On any occasion that he can, through any place that we give our eyes and our ears to, he will attempt to get that seed in there. But here's, here's the beautiful part. I have this seed to kind of give you an illustration. But So this is, a, this is an avocado seed. Now, let's just, for illustration's sake... You assume that if I go out and I plant this seed in the ground in good soil and it gets the nutrients that it needs, 
then this seed is going to grow into an avocado tree. And it's going to produce avocados that have seeds that can produce more avocado trees. I just find it remarkable that in the book of Genesis, God says every seed-bearing fruit carries forth the seed for life in itself, to produce itself, like multiply. And so the, the power of growth and multiplication, let me say it differently, the capacity, the full capacity for an orchard of olive trees exists right here in this one seed. Full capacity. So if that's the case, what's the limiting factor? What could prevent this from becoming an avocado grove? In the condition of the sower, and the so it's the condition of the soil. It's where the seed falls and what happens to the seed that determines what it produces. you got to get that. That this seed is not lacking any life or any power or any capacity to produce the fullness of what it's capable of. This word... Every single word in this book carries the life of God, the breath of God, the nature of God. Every word has the full capacity to transform and change your life. Every word. If that word, if that seed gets in there, guess what? Guaranteed. Guaranteed to produce a harvest. How do I know? Because it says, it says some falls on... Uh, to the wayside, some falls on rocky soil, and then some is choked out by thorns and sisals, but the other, the fourth, falls on good soil, and it produces a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. It will produce a crop. You know, farmers, a lot of times when they plant their fields, they will purchase crop insurance because certain things could happen to kill their crop and they could lose their harvest. And so insurance is a, it's a policy that can cover them in case that happens. That's a practical situation, or a, a normal situation. But with the Word of God, when it gets in there and it truly takes up residency in your spirit, you don't need crop insurance. You can take it to the bank, baby, because there's faith that when Jesus said it gets in there, it will produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100, varying degrees of what happens, we see that. But the idea is it will, not maybe, not might, it will produce a crop in our life. And that crop is the works and the impact life that James is talking about. That's why I said you've got to receive the implanted word, and you need to be meek in your spirit to see that it's the authority. You've got to receive the implanted word, then the life of doing and having the works of impact that we're talking about, then you will see that. Because the implanted word got in your soul, and it will always bring a crop when it does. I love that about the Word of God. You know, it's, it's, it's not a maybe thing. It, it, it's not a sometime thing. I know if we're getting ready in the morning and my wife comes up to me and she says, Hey, babe, how do I look today? How does this look on me? And if I say, you know, babe, you've had better days. <laughs> look, I will have a bad day. Not maybe, I will have a bad day. Guaranteed. No question about it. When this word gets in our heart and we've received it, 
the life of God taking up residency in our spirit to live and to grow with us, it will produce a crop. Multiple times over. I want to show you something as I close that God blew me away with this a number of years ago when I was studying the Word and I was studying about the parable of the sower and I remembered something that I had read in the book of Genesis and I thumbed back to it to see and it just exploded in me. In Genesis chapter 26, um, Isaac, right, son of Abraham, Isaac is in this land and there is a famine in the land. I believe it's called Gerar where he was. And so he's tempted to leave the land that he's in and go down to Egypt where they had stockpiles of food and supplies. It was a place where they could go and most likely they wouldn't die of starvation. And so there was a deep, severe famine in the land. Now think about this for a second. What does famine mean? It means nothing's growing. It means there is no rain. Everything is dry, parched, desolate. It's dry dirt everywhere. So Isaac is tempted to go down to Egypt to escape this famine. And God speaks to him. And he speaks a word that totally contradicts natural reasoning. You have to understand that. That's when you say, like, this is superior. It completely contradicts natural reasoning, but he decides he's going to listen and obey it anyway because this thing gets birthed in him because God spoke it to him, and then he trusts that the outcome is going to happen exactly the way God says the outcome will happen. Once he's heard the word of the Lord, it's settled. So what does God say to him? He says, simply, don't go to Egypt. Stay here and dwell in this land that you're in. Dwell means live and and prosper. It means cultivate the ground. Raise your family. Live the prosperous, blessed life that you're supposed to be living. Do that here in this land where there is a famine. Now, I don't know about you, but I get this picture in my head of old Isaac going around through the fields and, and tilling dry dirt and planting seed and people all around him being like, this guy's a madman. Look, look, at the, look at this guy. He's planting seed and dry dirt. It hadn't rained in months. What's he thinking's going to happen? He's wasting his time and his money. He needs to be on his way to Egypt is where he needs to be. No. Why? Why is Isaac doing that? It's very simple. He's heard something from the Lord, and it settled it. It totally put to death any other option that he may have entertained once he heard from God. And God said, you stay there, and you dwell there. Now, this is the part that I thought I remembered that I went back and looked at after studying the parable of the sower, where Jesus said, when it falls in good soil, it will produce a crop, not maybe, 30, 60, or 100 fold. Let's go to Genesis chapter 26, verse 12, to see what happened to Isaac when he stayed in Gerar. Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in that land the same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him. Does that not drive the point home for you or what? Folks, it's impossible 
for that to happen according to natural laws and limitations. You don't sow seed in a dry famine land, and you certainly, if you get anything popping up, do not reap a harvest that is multiplied a hundredfold in the same year that you just did that. It doesn't happen unless there's a supernatural power that's greater, that's at work, and that has been released through a life of faith that is now collided with and brought the inferior laws to its knees, which are the limitations of this world that will always bow a knee to the superior power of God's ability and His kingdom that are released through a life of faith from a son or daughter of God. How do we release it through faith? We have to know it. We have to believe it. And then our faith is active for that which we have heard God say. And the power of God always comes forth behind that. The crop will always come. I'll leave you with this closing thought. It's not really so different than many other things we see in the Bible in the way that it goes. Paul said in Ephesians 2, he said, you have been saved by grace through faith. And this is awesome because this ties into James. He says, it's not of works lest any man should boast. So it's very clear. Works can, cannot purchase you or earn you anything. It's a byproduct of something that's already happened for a price that was paid that you could never pay. Right? So he's saying grace, uh, uh, you're saved by grace through faith, not of works. But listen to this. Grace is the unmerited favor and power of God that flows into our lives. We all want that. We all need that to live a life of impact. But he said you've been saved by grace through faith. Meaning faith preceded grace. You had to first believe that you had what you had in order for the reality of that to actually come into your life. Think about your salvation experience. The grace of God saves us. But it's not until we believe that Jesus is who he said he was and he did what he said we, he did and we turn from the old life to turn to him. It's not until we believe that that the grace of God actually enters our lives. I love in the song Amazing Grace it says, How precious did that grace appear when the hour I first believed. Wow. Once we believe, boom, grace and power are released in our life to do a supernatural work. But what do you have to do to believe? You have to hear. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by, what else? The Word of God, the seed, the life-giving source that God wants to breathe into you, that He wants to release into you to take residency in your heart and spirit, to produce the fullness of the crop that he wants to produce in your life of impact and purpose and destiny. And he wants to bring that for you and for me and for every single one of us. Isn't that powerful? God has great and mighty things planned for you. And he is wanting to release this word into your heart consistently so that what he wants to do can come forth. He has set a requirement for you to have faith and believe for him to release his power into those situations in your life. Don't get me wrong. God is merciful, and he does intervene in moments and at times. That happens. 
But there's a law and a principle that's set forth that when we believe, so just believe and it'll move a mountain. If you believe, it'll happen. And we have to have heard the word, received it, and this faith is produced in us, a thing of substance to which we can stand on. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. It says that in the book of Hebrews. And that's something. And so that faith drives our lives. That's the idea. This word of God has to be the driving force for a life of impact to occur. If it's hooked up to anything else, it'll never happen. It'll always be limited in many ways. It, it can never even flourish. It's this right here that needs to drive everything that we're doing. That is exactly why Jesus said, man cannot live by bread alone. Cannot. You must live by every word that proceedeth from the mouth of God. Spiritual nourishment and sustenance is what our spirits yearn for, crave, and need to be edified, to be strengthened, and to bring forth and birth those good works, that life of impact, that I'll just remind you one last time, God has absolutely called you and every one of his children into to partner and participate with him in. He wants to use you. He wants to use you, but he needs to get his word in you so that faith is produced and his power can follow where you go. And that life that James is saying, we need to see this, then all of a sudden there's an authentic expression of the Christian walk that aligns with, Paul said, walk worthy of the calling in which you've been called, meaning it aligns with it. It's, it's clear. You can look at it and say, yeah, that's, that looks like a God of the universe of heaven and earth that created them, saved them, and is working in their life. That, that's what that looks like. It aligns with that. And God is calling us all into a life that that kind of evidence is being birthed in and being produced in and around us. People need what we have. And God is trying to get it out and get it to them. Amen?